Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And we are at the uh, Chortle Book Festival, Chortle Comedy Book Festival at the British Library. Hooray! Hooray! Nice having a sort of a bit of a whoop whoop for a book festival gig there. So um, we're very excited because uh, this is for the first time ever on Sitcom Geeks. uh, We have a guest who is a novelist, in fact, a great uh, comic novelist, uh, one of the best in the country. What a carve up. Uh, Rotter's Club, um, uh, the Maxwell Sim, which I've immediately forgotten in the moment what the beginning of the Maxwell Sim title was. The Terrible Privacy. The Terrible Privacy of Maxwell Sim. And most recently, uh, a great new book out now called Middle England. So please welcome Jonathan Coe. Jonathan, we'd like to say, obviously, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, this evening. And uh, we... we, uh, Sitcom geeks, we normally talk about sitcom. Uh, so why, you might think, do we have a, a novelist with us? Well, if there That's was exactly a... exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good night. <laughs> so um, in the sort of the, the Venn diagram of comedy, I suppose, James and I, uh, we write um, sitcom and Jonathan writes novels. But uh, in that sort of middle uh, area of the Venn diagram... Uh, sitcom, I think, uh, it's fair to say that you, Jonathan, are uh, a bit, bit of a fan of the genre... Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, that's true. Yep, and very much uh, the, the the golden era, really. I suppose of sitcom. Uh, well, we, what we would consider to be the golden era, the the nineteen seventies. Yeah, I'm looking at the audience and trying to uh, gauge the average age of the uh, audience members. I, I better not actually <laughs> speak my calculations out loud, but uh, but it, but it could be that some of the references, uh, some of the very specific nineteen seventies comedy references go over some people's heads but um you know you talk about the golden age i think i think we all look back on whatever we were watching as a teenager probably as the golden age of, of something or other and I, yeah. I don't know whether the 70s really were the golden age of sitcom but they were they were the age it was the decade when i started watching sitcoms and right. we had a pretty rich pickings i think yeah. during that decade we're going to talk in some detail actually about one of those uh specifically and um that's um, going to be a bit later. We'll talk about uh, whatever happened to The Likely Lads, which uh, was follow-up to the great The Likely Lads. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, well, that's probably the first time that phrase was used, wasn't it? Whatever happened to. And that's become such a sort of, uh, such a cliche now, hasn't it, that everybody uh, didn't realise that's where it originated with uh, Clement and Lafrene. Now, um, you say that, you know, you... you you, uh, you loved sitcom, but you never were actually drawn to writing sitcom then yourself. It's not that I was never drawn to it, but no, I'm kind of very lazy. I wait for people to ask me to do things normally, and nobody has ever asked me to write a sitcom, strangely enough. Um, so, uh, you know, and I don't like, I'm not very good at those kind of uh, commissioning meetings and, and that sort of thing, and, and writing pitches and all the sorts of stuff that you're supposed to do. Well, to you're work a writer. That's, uh, no writer is ever any good in a pitching meeting, I think. I, I suppose not. But, yeah, and, you know, the great thing about novels is you can just sit down in your room and get on with writing it, and you don't need anybody's permission. You don't need uh, a financial incentive necessarily. You can just... Uh, you, just, as well. you can just do it, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in, in I mean, the first novel I sent off to a publisher was in 1976 when I was 15, and, uh, you know, if I'd, if I'd known anything about 
how sitcoms were commissioned or something like that, then maybe I would have been sending off sitcom scripts to the BBC, but I didn't. But I just thought, I would, I'd read uh, Pacoon and Adolf Hitler, My Partner is Downfall by Spike Milligan, and I saw that his publisher was called Michael Joseph, and the address of the publisher was on the title page of the book, so I thought, well, that's easy. I'll just put this in an envelope and send it to them. So it was, it was the simplicity of the process that, uh, that, that made me do it that way. And what um, happened? Do you know they rejected it? Well, yes, but <laughs> did they do it nicely? Um, did they reject it nicely? Yeah. Did they get back to you and, you know, what was the process? That first rejection letter ought to be ingrained on my memory. It should, it? yeah. yeah. Uh, but I can't remember... I don't think there was a rejection letter. I think I got okay. a slip. I think yeah. I got a printed slip okay. saying sort of thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And uh, I came back to that novel, uh, I don't know, five or six years later and uh, reread it. And it was a Saturday afternoon. My father was having a bonfire at the top of the garden. And I took it up and I tossed it on the bonfire. Oh. It's, the only, uh, it's the only thing of mine I've ever uh, destroyed wow. in that way. And yeah. you're thinking how much that could have got you on eBay now. <laughs> no, I, wouldn't, I, I was embarrassed by the person it revealed me to have been when I, when I wrote it. That was, that was the problem. It was, uh, it, was, it was just a bad piece of work on so many levels. Was it basically your teenage diary extended? Um, no, it was basically a kind of Reginald Perrin ripoff, I suppose, but, right. but done with none of the warmth and generosity and, and all of the kind of teenage self-confidence and that kind of thing. Right. And uh, I just didn't like it at but all. Th this, this was a thing in the, the 70s as well, wasn't it? That there were, and I, I, remember the, the, I, re I remember watching Reggie Perrin, but also then becoming aware much later that, that they, were, they were novels as well as a sitcom. Whereas that, but actually I found out from you that lots of 70s sitcoms were, uh, that they were, made into novels? They were. Um, I had a little shelf, well, it was the windowsill in my bedroom, actually, which was dedicated to comedy books. So I had the Monty Python Papabock, or whatever it was called, uh, and the Big Red Book, and the Monty Python and the Holy Grail script, and that kind of stuff. I had a book about, a book by Dick Emery, although I don't know if he really wrote it, uh, I had Ronnie Barker's books. Was Dick Emery's book of called You Are Awful <laughs> But I Like You? Uh, amazingly, it wasn't. And oh, perhaps, that's okay. why, perhaps that's why it never, uh, it never flew off the shelves in the way that, <laughs> right. it, that yeah. it might have done. I could imagine it was called Dick Emery in Character. Oh, right. that. Okay. I could imagine the publishers maybe thinking, You Are Awful, can we put You Are <laughs> Awful on the title of a book? <laughs> yeah. Even though it's the well-known catchphrase. Yeah. And then, uh, yes, there was the novel of... Uh, Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads, first series. Mm -hmm. There were two or three porridge novelizations mm -hmm. uh, written in the first person as written by Norman Stanley Fletcher. Okay. Um, were these written by Clement Lafrenet? Or no, they, they, they were... I mean, years later, I um, wrote a biography of an experimental novelist called B.S. Johnson. Mm -hmm. And one of the people I interviewed for that was uh, another experimental novelist of the 60s called Paul Abelman. And, uh, you know, when I interviewed him about his friendship with B.S. Johnson, I, I said in a very apologetic way, I'm afraid I've not read any of your books. And, uh, and with him, then we got talking about, about stuff, and he revealed that one of the books he'd written was the novelization of the Porridge movie. Oh. I said, oh, I have read one of your books, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I read that book several times when right. I was a teenager. He wasn't very, he wasn't particularly pleased that that was the one of his books that, it, that I'd singled out, but, uh, but it turned out that I had. Right. Uh, there was a Good Life novel. Mm-hmm. There was a Man About the House novel. That, um, does, that does surprise me, actually. I mean, I can see how Good Life, I can imagine a novelization of something like The Good Life uh, and, and Porridge, but Man About the House doesn't quite feel it has mm. that sort of... Uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the powerful storytelling that one might uh, know? No, you're right. You are right. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a much, much underrated sitcom, I think, Man About the House, anyway. But uh, no, the novel is not, uh, is not high, even in the pantheon of uh, sitcom novels, I don't think. Yeah, right. Probably wouldn't make the top ten, uh, to do be think, honest. So <laughs> do you think that um, the fact that you own sitcoms, so you own novels of sitcoms, just sort of made the novel a plausible, you know, pathway for your because even 20 years ago when I was starting out writing being a script writer for the television was not really a thing and now everyone wants to, to do that um, and that's partly why this podcast exists and that's, yeah. and that's fine but back but you know even in, in the late 90s it's like well people just you just didn't know anyone that wrote scripts or anything mm. uh, but being a novelist was sort of a thing I guess do you think it was you were much affected by those sort of plausibility structures I mean yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I read, I read articles and profiles of sitcom writers like Galton and Simpson and uh, Spike Milligan and Eric Sykes and things, and it, it seemed completely other to to the life I was living. I was living in a in a suburb of Birmingham with my with my parents. As I said, I could sit down at a table in my bedroom and write uh, a novel if I wanted to, but but. It, Seemed sounded to me as though to write sitcoms, you needed an office in West London, and you, you, you know you you, yeah. you went to BBC, yeah. you went to meetings at White City and that kind of thing, and that just seemed so far removed from, from yeah. what I was doing. Right. Um, I mean, I realised in retrospect that this wasn't the case. In fact, I remember talking to David Nobbs uh, a few years ago, just before he died, about the fact which I hadn't been aware of, but in his very brief tenure as a commissioning editor at the BBC, he'd commissioned... I think his was name he was, really? Uh, he was, and, and his what discovery. What a glorious fortnight that was! Yeah. His discovery was uh, Raymond Allen, and and some others do have him, he, who, oh. which he kind of plucked off the slush pile. And I said, you know, who was Raymond Allen? I never, I never really heard anything else about what he wrote, and he just lived with his mother in the Isle of Wight, I think, and sent these scripts, yeah. sent these scripts yeah. in. I've met him. So, well, there you go. Yeah. So you can, uh, it could be done that way. It turned out. Yeah, right. but uh, I didn't know that at the time. No. Yeah. I mean, it does sound to me, though, like uh, uh, you, you uh, say, um, in one hand, on one hand, you said you're a bit lazy and, you know, that's why you ended up writing novels. But the idea that you wrote a novel aged 15 does, does kind of betray a possibly more sort of precocious talent. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I was kind of precocious in that way, I suppose. But mm-hmm. it, it was the it was the kind of unreachability of the, the TV comedy world. That, uh, that, that held me back, I think. Well, there's something very democratic about a novel, isn't there? Because you think, well, I could... You can sort of, There's not rocket science to go, well, you just need to type about 80,000 words and you've got a novel. Mm. Whereas, actually, a, um, a TV script is like an architect's drawing. It's a blueprint for a TV show. Yeah. And so it's like there's, a, there's an extra layer there which, which you might just think, well, I, w- I wouldn't know how to do that. Whereas, actually, it was interesting reading i've just uh, read uh, the ross's club which i very much enjoyed and it did occur to me just quite how sitcommy the dialogue is quite often it has a real rhythm of comedy absolutely and, and actually you were 
I don't know why you're wasting your life as a novelist, basically, <laughs> is what I'm saying. You could have been a great sitcom writer. And you still could be. Come on, it's, it's not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, would, we, we said we were going to talk about uh, whatever happened to the Lighter Lads and, and Dick Clement and Ian Lafreny later, but just let me tell uh, this story, which is that when they adapted The Rotters Club for television in, uh, in 2004, they sent me the scripts, and I was, I was uh, very excited, obviously, to, to read what my, these great heroes of mine had made of my work. And I was a bit disappointed because... I was expecting lots of new Clement and Lafrenet touches and lines oh. and, and this kind of thing. And uh, we had a meeting about it, and I said, obviously, that I'd love the scripts and how faithful they'd been to the novels, but I was hoping for a little, <laughs> for a few new jokes and this kind of thing, and for them to rewrite the dialogue, basically. And they said, well, wow, you you're giving Clement <laughs> and Lafrenet rewrites. This is amazing. <laughs> and, I would, and they said, well, normally we do, when we adapt a novel, we do rewrite the dialogue, but we didn't feel like it in this case because the, the dialogue felt very familiar to us. And I said, well, that's because it's all based on your writing in the first place. <laughs> and that, no, I mean, seriously, the, the rhythms of that dialogue come straight from yeah. Porridge and the Lighter Lads. And uh, they, they kind of felt that, I think, and didn't, didn't feel they needed to, yeah. to do much to it. Wow, that's quite some feedback loop, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's amazing. Mm. Yeah. In years to come, somebody is going to interview Clement Lafrenet and say, no, I never watched uh, any of your shows. And, and then they'll say, oh, but I did read your <laughs> adaptation of Jonathan Coe's Ross's play. <laughs> and they won't be very pleased about it. But um, the, um, uh, apart from the dialogue as well, uh, the thing that, that that's, uh, I, I was thinking about, and particularly since I've been reading Middle England, and, and, um, but in relation to your other books, uh, there's also that the, the characters often feel like characters from sitcoms. So people like, I mean, Maxwell Sim is a sort of lovable loser type, but um, Benjamin Trotter is someone who's, you know, and, and there's a few of these characters who, uh, and, and Michael Owen in Motocarve Up, they're kind of, they've, they've got this sort of obsession thing they're obsessed with and that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're always trying to get the thing that they're never actually going to be able to get, which is a sort of classic um, sitcom mm. character. Well, uh, you know, I think the, the things you watch and the things you read as a teenager are the things that stamp themselves most strongly and irremovably on your consciousness. <laughs> Maybe that's just, that's just me, but it's, it's certainly true in my case. And I, I just wasn't reading any contemporary fiction or any contemporary novels when uh, I was a teenager. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have named Kingsley Amis or Iris Murdoch or Margaret Drabble or all these people who were, who were big in the, in the 70s. I didn't know who they were, but I did know who Clement and Lafrenet mm -hmm. and, and Esmond and Larby and Eric Chappell and uh, David Nobbs and all these people. You know, I, I, I was watching their shows uh, obsessively. So it's, it's no wonder, really, that... that, that the, those kind of characterizations, the kind of Rigsby's and the Reginald Perrins uh, and, I don't know, the George Ropers from Man About the House, pe people like that, are the, are the ones who, who find their way into, into, into my books. Right. I okay. mean, you know, subsequently, I went to Cambridge, I, I started reading uh, proper literature, uh, did a PhD on the 18th century novel, so all sorts of uh, kind of proper literary influences started, started coming in. But they were secondary, really, to the sitcom influences. Right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so uh, Sheridan and all these people were, were second to uh, Man About the House. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, just just to go back to that uh, 
Venn diagram that I mentioned at the start, uh, and this is a name that's already come up a few times, but David Nobbs is actually one of the few people I can think of who uh, has had a, or had a very successful career as a sitcom writer and a novelist. And I mean, I know he, he always thought of himself as a novelist first and a sitcom writer second, but um, a couple of the things that, I mean, he used to say that I thought were, and again, I see them in your novels, I think, to some extent, he talks about uh, the attention to detail. He says that all com the best comedy is attention to detail, and there's a lot of the beautiful sort of moments and, uh, in there. But also, he talks about the fact that he said all, all, comedy, all comedy is cruelty, Mm. Do you do you, um, oh, do you all comedy comedy is cruelty, and there's there's certainly a lot of warmth uh, in David's books, but there's a darkness in his books as well. Mm. I mean, I remember watching Reginald Perrin uh, on television and getting about three episodes in, and then I went to the uh, W. H. Smith in Bromsgrove, my nearest uh, my nearest bookshop, and suddenly there was Leonard Roster on the front of a book, and I realised that this series was a book as well. So I bought that and kind of started reading it ahead of the TV episodes, so I was kind of ahead in the book of, of what was being broadcast. And I, I realized that the book itself was very dark, very melancholy, very surreal in, this, in the second half. And that was a kind of revelation to me because I'd, I'd, I'd thought that there was funny and there was serious, and I didn't realize that the two things could, could coincide. Right. And really, David's novel was the first thing that made me realize that combination was possible. I mean, I, I read it almost at the same time in my life, I think, that I read Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, which also, in a very different way, made me realize the same thing. But that's, that was the point at which I realized that, that comedy and seriousness could sort of coexist. Did you watch, sorry, did you read all of Catch-22? Because I, I read all of it, assuming that everyone reads all of it, and discovered that virtually everyone I know gave up after about two-thirds because <laughs> oh. they'd got the idea. Everyone read no, all of it? I, read to the end? Yeah, I read to the end. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You read to the end. Yeah. Excellent. Good. <laughs> but yeah, I keep meeting people who said, yeah, kind of, yeah, once you've sort of read two thirds of it. Mm. Um, well, but if you were enjoying it, why would you stop reading well, Catch-22 two, two thirds of the way through? It's just well, it's, it's more of the same, which it is, is great. Isn't it? Well, you see, yeah, but it, and, and I, but it, it really feels like more of the same, doesn't it? But, yeah. uh, but no, I, I, I enjoyed it. And I, one of the few occasions my reading habits make me feel morally superior to people because I've actually finished that one, um, which is unusual. The great thing about Joseph Heller, I think, when somebody asked him, um, uh, a journalist asked him, and you must be very tired of journalists asking you uh, stupid questions. Um, it's a journalist <laughs> asked Joseph Heller about, you know, how you, you know, it's like, how are you coping with, you know, coming up with a sequel or writing another book that comes up to the quality mm. of Catch-22? I can't remember exactly how the question was phrased. It's like, uh, but the, the punchline was effectively, well, who has? You know, who's written a book that's better than Catch-22? Mm. And you just think... God, blimey, imagine sitting under that, you know, yeah. that you, you sort of... But at the same time, acknowledging the fact that you've written a really, truly, an amazing, mm. an amazing book. Yeah. And um, I should have remembered the setup to that punchline much better than <laughs> I did. Um, but you, you get the idea with yeah. that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so there's a melancholy yeah. there, isn't there? Mm. And actually, in Reggie Perrin, it's interesting how the despair and the comedy are slightly separate. Because, actually, in, in Porridge, I'm thinking of some really long and serious moments where the audience are aching to laugh and they give you a laugh. Mm. I'm thinking particularly of when Godber has been told to throw the fight, yep. the boxing one. Mm. 
and he sort of says, you know, and he's saying to Godber, you can't go down, you know, you can't go down in the second. And Godber says, oh, it's all right, I'm going to go down in the first. Um, and it's that lovely, and the audience is just like, hooray! It was a joke after all. But with um, with uh, with Perrin, there was an episode ending with him just screaming. Yeah. And you think, oh blimey, this is <laughs> this is quite a dark heart, isn't it? Um, yeah, and I, th- I think David was always very proud of that side of his work, really. Um, in the early 90s, when I was reviewing books for the Sunday Times, I normally reviewed whatever they asked me to do, and the, the choice of books was theirs. But I noticed that David had a book coming out called The Cucumber Man, which, uh, which I asked if I could review. Mm. And the literary editor was very, very surprised. He said, you really wanted to review that? And I said, yes, I, I do. So I wrote a rave review. And uh, the concluding line of which was that I said that I thought David Nobbs was probably our finest post-war comic novelist. And uh, the guy at the Sunday Times said, you realise that that line is going to be on every David Nobbs paperback from, from now on. And I said, that's fine. That's fine by me. I'll, I'll stand by it. And sure enough, it was on every David Nobbs paperback from then on until towards the end of his life when David asked his publishers to take it off. And uh, he told me this. And I said, why, why have you... Why have you done that? And he said, well, I, didn't re- I decided I didn't really like it. And I said, uh, he said, there was a word in there that I didn't like. And I thought he meant probably. <laughs> I thought he objected to the, uh, to, the word, to the word probably in that uh, verdict. But he said, no, it was the word comic. Uh, he felt that uh, being referred to as a comic novelist diminished what it was that he'd done. Oh. And uh, I thought that was a very interesting thing for him to feel at that point in his in yeah. his career, really, that, that he felt it was a it was a millstone around his neck somehow. Yeah, because he, he wasn't an arrogant person at all. No, not know, at all. That, that that you could you could take that to mean somebody just saying you know or, or one of those people who says oh comedies and comedies are uh, not as important as drama. He wasn't. Yeah. He certainly wasn't coming as it from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that you've suffered from a bit of that in terms of people just say that your books are sort of funny and therefore they take them less seriously? I mean, that's the case undoubtedly with Hollywood movies. It's like if you've done a comedy, you're not winning an Oscar. I mean, that's just a given. Yeah. Uh, that's, comedy films do not win Oscars, even mm. though anyone who works in comedy knows how incredibly difficult is comedy because it needs to have a drama structure to it and have jokes, which is incredibly difficult. Do you yeah. feel that you've, you know... that? that you might have uh, sort of gone more serious for more acclaim or anything like that? or Not, not really. I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, it's true that none of my novels have come within sniffing distance of a literary prize for, for about 20 years, but, uh, but I don't think that's because they're sometimes funny. Uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know what it is. I think it's just bad luck or something, but... Um, I, no, I don't. I don't get the sense that that's the reason. When I published a novel called *The Rain Before It Falls* about ten years ago, which is so uncomic that it's almost comical—the <laughs> uh, the, the lack of jokes and right. the grimness of the storyline and that and that kind of thing—and I think I, at that point I did. One of the things going on in the back of my mind at that point was, well, this is an interesting test case. I didn't write it for this reason, but mm. let, let's see if this gets shortlisted for any for any right. prizes. And it didn't. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, it's obviously uh, it's probably not the humour that's that's, yeah. that's done it. Yeah, right. I don't know. I mean, the the British the English even have a strange ambivalent relationship to this, in a way, because I think you're right. There is the same kind of Oscar thing going on that comic novels, with the exception of recently Howard Jacobson's. The Finkler question was it which won the Booker mm. tend not to be up for the big prizes, mm. and at the same time, 
you know, we, we pride ourselves on our Woodhouse and our Evelyn War and our David Lodge and this kind of thing and the, the, the so-called great English sense of humour. Uh, but somehow they don't, they're not seen to coexist in the same universes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I find it very strange. We were talking earlier before about how, yeah, th th either a book is a comedy or it's not. It can't be one thing and a comedy. Mm. So you can be a Terry Pratchett and have a fantasy comedy, and that's sort of a thing now. But I was saying earlier, my failed novel uh, is called Crossword Ends in Violence, and I wrote it, and it's basically Robert Harris with jokes. Um, that's not a thing. Yeah. And so my, and I, my literary agent, they are probably better for novels than they are for screenwriting. They just couldn't get a publisher to, mm. to do it. And because it's just like, we don't know what to do with this. And just, mm. we just, just tell people it's Robert Harris with jokes. It's just like, mm. no. No, nobody wants that. Uh, well, okay. So That's 80,000 words I'm not going to get back still. <laughs> Carry on. We, um, uh, this possibly feels like a good time to, to, to uh, bring up um, Middle England. Um, now, we, we, we try not to um, talk about Brexit um, in the uh, Sitcom Geeks podcast because uh, that way uh, only leads to despair and anger and uh, everything else. But actually, it's kind of hard to not talk about Brexit. Uh, I just I was kind of just see a quick show of hands of people who've read Middle England so far. Yes. Oh, we have two. Very uh, good. Well right, done. Who are reading it at the moment. Oh, OK. And then the rest of you, of course, are going to buy it. Just like <laughs> yes. Out there. Yeah. Oh, I think I'll take 10% of that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, yes, that, uh, I, I've, I've read it and uh, it, it certainly is... Um, <laughs> It's an amazing novel, I think, and it does sort of cover, it, it, it's quite epic, uh, and, and it really seeks to kind of uh, get underneath, I think, the whole, the, the whole reasons for Brexit, so it's not just um, about, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the actual uh, vote itself, but it kind of starts uh, kind of fittingly, I think, at that point where um, Gordon Brown is met by, is it the uh, Gillian Duffy? I think yeah. that's the starting point. And is, uh, she... Uh, Inadvertently caught on microphone calling her a sort of bigoted woman. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, someone I read, someone said, no, it was Miss Hood. It was, it was actually big-hearted woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't but, blame uh, them for trying. Uh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I think there was someone called Gladys Steptoe, I think, said that yeah. on Twitter. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, credit people, um, but there's just a, a little bit I thought I'd quite like. To wow, you're going to read well, from his novel in front well, of no, him. Uh, wow, <laughs> go on then. Would bold. you not rather the novelist himself? I have Very merely bold. opened. I have merely opened the page and right. and said, you know, and, and, and oh, I'm going to read it. To, well, it's up to you. Would really. you like to read it? We haven't cleared it with your agent, so no, uh, that's true. So yeah. which bit would you like me to well, read? Well, it's about. The, there's basically. I mean, shall I shall I fill in the little bit yeah. of the story? It's uh, the Without giving away too much, um, there are two characters who uh, split up, who are in a relationship, who split up because one voted leave and one voted remain. Uh, and they go and see a, 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 a therapist uh, after this to try and kind of work out work out their feelings. And that's the kind of point at which... Uh, okay. So that's the top of the page, I suppose. Right, really. yep. Um. It's not very funny, this bit, I have to warn you, but anyway. <laughs> During their first session a few weeks later, their relationship counsellor, Lorna, told them that many of the couples she was seeing at the moment had mentioned Brexit as a key factor in their growing estrangement. I usually start by asking each of you the same question, she said. Sophie, why are you so angry that Ian voted leave? And Ian, why are you so angry that Sophie voted remain? Sophie had thought a long time before answering. 
I suppose, she said, because it made me think that as a person, he's not as open as I thought he was, that his basic model for relationships comes down to antagonism and competition, not cooperation. Lorna had nodded and turned to Ian, who had answered, it makes me think that she's very naive, that she lives in a bubble and can't see how other people around her might have a different opinion to hers, and this gives her a certain attitude, an attitude of moral superiority, to which Lorna had said, what's interesting about both of those answers is that neither of you mentioned politics, as if the referendum wasn't about Europe at all. Maybe something much more fundamental and personal was going on, which is why this might be a difficult problem to resolve. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Excellent. That is a sitcom geeks first. Yes. Novelist reading from own novel on sitcom geeks. But I think, I mean, the reason that that sort of struck a chord with me was that I was thinking, I, I, I did a, uh, a speech earlier this year at a, a comedy festival where we were talking about um, sitcom and the, the, sort of the English character. And, and the thing that uh, I was kind of thinking about really was how uh, Nigel Farage and I probably don't have anything in common at all, but sitters in a room together watching Dad's Army, and we would probably both sit there and, and, and laugh a lot. And I was just wondering if, if you thought that maybe com comedy maybe is a way through. I mean, you've, you've navigated it. I thought that passage showed the sort of how you navigate it uh, in a book in a way that resonates with the people who are pro or anti can read yeah. and, and can get stuff from. Do you think that comedy might be a way? I don't know. I'm sort of freaked out by this idea of sitting in a room with Nigel Farage watching Dad's <laughs> Army, actually. I, 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 I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to it I, myself, I, frankly. I, yeah. I love Dad's Army, but I think that might suck all the pleasure out of it for me. Um, <laughs> is this not a request to Nigel Farage? I'm and here saying. he is now. <laughs> and you wonder what the big screen was for. Well, <laughs> run the tape. That does sound like a sky doesn't I, it? Watching Dad's Army with Nigel Farage. <laughs> that sounds like an Alan Partridge pitch for a TV show, doesn't it? Anyway, sorry. I've done a few events recently, actually, where uh, people in the audience... We've been talking about Brexit and people in the audience have brought up Dad's Army and brought up the fact that it's the only BBC sitcom, probably, which has been repeated non-stop mm. for 20 or 30 years yeah. on primetime terrestrial on a, on a Saturday night yeah. and whether there's something about it which, uh, which strikes a chord with Brexiters or has inspired Brexit or something like this. This image of the, uh, you know, the, the, the plucky... The plucky Brits standing alone against uh, Europe and being a bit useless and amateur about it, but still there's something in their spirit which, which pulls them through. I mean, I find it is a very Brexity sitcom in some ways. Even, uh, it's, it, it, I think, and it's as James will uh, frequently mentions, it's the most popular comedy show on BBC Two, week, yeah. week in, week out. Yeah, it, gets, yeah. it always it, wins the ratings, yeah. pretty much. And it, I think it's that it, it sort of appeals to both uh, both sides. Uh, in 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 some ways, I think you can watch it as a as a remainer and and yeah. and uh, see it as a yeah actually you know there's the European Union that was the collective thing that was formed after the fact that that you know the, to make sure that there wouldn't be a a thing like the Germans having the power again. So, yeah. so you can you can have that kind of and then again it's a sort of slightly melancholic thing isn't it mm. a feeling of, uh, of loss and then but similarly as you say it's you know us against the Germans and so it can work both ways 
Yeah. I mean, there are, there are two kinds of humor in Middle England, I think. There are, there are five chapters which, as you uh, pointed out to me when we were talking in the green room just, uh, just now, uh, have a kind of slight yes minister feel to them and which feature uh, a David Cameron uh, aide, a press spokesman talking to a journalist and they're, they're five set piece dialogues and they're there really to take the reader through the whole absurd process of how the referendum was mismanaged, how its result took everybody in the government by surprise and, and this kind of thing. And uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's quite kind of full on satirical in that yes minister way. And then with the other characters, the characters to whom the referendum happens, if you like, the, the ordinary people of uh, Middle England and London who, who make up the rest of the cast of characters, there is a kind of warmer, gentler comedy just of human interaction, such as you know Benjamin's, the affair that Benjamin finds himself having in his late 50s and, and the, the absurd sex scene and, and this, this kind of thing. Uh, and I think, yeah, with, with that second vein of comedy, that, that sort of gentler, more human comedy, there is maybe a, a hope in the back of my mind when I was writing that, that one of the ways that we can start liking each other again as a nation and enjoying each other's company is again again as a nation is is through humor and just just through that that finding of a kind of humorous mm. common ground mm. so you know I, I don't push that in the book or, in, or anything like that but but I, I suppose there is a kind of slightly tentative optimistic sense that humor mm. might be something that eventually reconciles us to each other again I mean, I think it's an even taller order now than it ever was in the 70s or 80s because now everyone has their own screen. People don't have to watch things together like they used to. I mean, previously there were... I can still remember there being only three channels and you basically watched what you were told. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I mean, there were no water coolers back then, but if there had been, people would have been discussing mostly the same shows at the water cooler um, at work because there was a shared experience. But, I mean sitcom is already mainstream sitcom broad sitcom already is a very very tall order to get commissioned and to be widely accepted and all that kind of stuff and to sort of put it under the pressure of we need one of these to save our countries it's like oh wow I mean, talk about talk about pressure i wonder if this though takes us from uh from going from dad's army and and the book into the likely lads though because mm. actually it's interesting hearing because I've, I've sort of come back to The Likely Lads, uh, whatever happens to The Likely Lads, I've watched it on, I think it's on YouTube, and I've watched about four or five episodes over the last few weeks and just thought, what an interesting sitcom it is in terms of it feels like uh, Britain at a bit of a crossroads. Mm. And you've got one chap who's moving on and one chap who feels left behind. Um, and it's mostly talking. Yes, yeah, uh, it is. Whatever happens to The Likely yes, Lads. And, yes, and none the worse for it yeah. as well. Um, you know, so is so. What what is it originally? Then you were watching it because you were possibly unaware of the importance of the show. I guess when you were first watching yeah. it, yeah, an incredibly precocious <laughs> teenager. Um, what well, was it that grabbed you? Um, just to backtrack for a moment, there is a couple of the characters in Middle England are overtly nostalgic themselves for the 1970s, and in fact specifically bring up this point that, you know, famously the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show of 1977 was seen by 21 million people and, and drew the whole nation together. And then I have a character at the end of the book who is uh, an Asian woman in her 20s saying, well, I don't want to go back to the 1970s. It sounds like an absolute shit time for, for somebody like me. And I've had... Uh, 
people make this point to me before, that, that uh, this, this idea that comedy back in the 70s brought the whole nation together mm. involves a very restrictive sense of what the whole nation was. And that, uh, you know, 70s sitcoms and comedy shows were often very uncomfortable viewing for women, uh, for the way they were sexualized, for, for black people, uh, for gay people. You know, these, these, these minorities were often just used as, as figures of fun and figures of ridicule. One of the things I like about whatever happened to Lightly Lads and Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet's writing generally is that with a couple of uh, lapses, they, they didn't do this at all. And the, uh, the, the shows are, are very generous towards all the characters and are often very progressive in their, in, mm. in their social attitudes. That, that didn't really, that wasn't something that struck me when I was right, watching them at the time. Mm. Um, I think what struck me about whatever happened to the Lighter Lads when I first saw it, and I suppose I would have been about 13, um, was that already it was, a, it was a show about nostalgia and about the passing of time and about friendship and how friendship changes mm. over time. And something about this must have struck a chord with me. And it's been a theme throughout all of, all of my books. All, all of my books are, are about how people cope with aging and about how they cope with time passing and how you reconcile yourself to mm. that. And just the theme tune, you know, what, whatever happened to me, whatever happened to you. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's really the only, It's the only, the only thing to look forward to is the past. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, that, 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 that's quite a... That's quite a kind of serious line for yeah. a, for the theme tune of a of a sitcom, and I found a great depth in the characterizations, and I really liked the way that Thelma, Bob's wife, is put as the kind of uh, the kind of sticking point in their friendship, without herself ever being made fun of or without the audience ever being asked to do anything other than sympathise with her, really, because mm. she's she's kind of the tragic heroine of that sitcom because she's 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 stuck trying to make a go of her marriage with Bob and really the real love story in Bob's life is his, uh, is his friendship with Terry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I found that very poignant and very well handled by Dick and Ian. Yeah. No, it's, it's very interesting, actually. Now you mentioned it, I hadn't really spotted that, that she is never the annoying wife who is demanding or this and that. Actually, she just has an entirely reasonable request that her husband is not obsessed with his childhood friend. Yes. Who is actually a bit of a waste of space um, and is self-pitying and nostalgic. Um, uh, but again, we understand why he's like that. It feels like he does feel left behind, doesn't he, by how everything has moved on and these great big housing estates are being built and the middle class are now building a nice you know, home for themselves. Yeah. And he's thinking, well, what about me? Um, yeah, no, it is very powerful in that sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing what you mentioned there that I hadn't really thought of about that sitcom. Well, what is that sort of Brexity uh, sense of the, the sort of nostalgia of a time that has gone? And that's very much what um, the, um, you know, the, the, the likely lads that that time, you know, they, we're young, we've got a bit of money, you know, we're out chasing women and that. It, it, the original black and white 60s yeah, series, yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. And, and the, the, so there is very much a sense that, um, that 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 time has vanished, but, um, but that Terry wants to, wants to recreate that time. Mm. He wants to go back and in a sense maybe Ter Terry is a little bit of uh, Brexit, I suppose. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, Bob absolutely. Is, Bob is Remain, maybe. 
Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, there's the famous episode where they, they're trying to avoid hearing the, uh, well, the football results. Yeah. There's a great scene in that which, as you say, is just a long dialogue scene of the two talking in a pub and has nothing to do with the main uh, trajectory of the episode. But uh, Which doesn't actually have one. Yes. <laughs> we'll get on to that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just Terry talking about how he dislikes and distrusts every other nation in the world. And he, he you know, he, he starts with uh, Asian countries and then moves and yeah. all, goes all the way through Europe, stereotyping every single European country. Yeah. And finally, he says that he doesn't like the Scots, he doesn't like the Welsh, he doesn't like the Irish, he's not that keen on the people who live up his, up his street. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's... it's um, there's, there's little doubt about he would have how he would have voted in the referendum, I don't think. Right, OK. Well, the, the thing about that episode, I did watch that, and that is the only episode I can never remember watching when I was much, much younger, when they must have repeated it in the late 80s or something. Yep. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, it would be interesting to watch that now, because I bet you there's this really interesting subtext of the, the, the show's not really about them not trying to find out the football score. It's about something else. And I watched it. And it's just about them not trying to find out football school. There yeah. isn't a long-running B yeah. plot, which is actually secretly the A plot. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting. But because it's, it's actually not that good an episode. Mm. But I did wonder if the thing that I was envious of, in a way, of watching that is like, but it didn't matter. Because this was episode one of a, of a sitcom. And the BBC had four sitcoms on that week. And this was just another one of them. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't overthink it like that. Yeah. And now every single sitcom of every, sing- every single episode of every single new sitcom is sort of really minutely examined. And it's sort of like the impossible burden now being put on, for the benefit of the listener, I now have my head in my hands. <laughs> um, uh, this impossible burden. Whereas actually these guys were just kind of cranking out episodes because they, yeah. they were writing porridge pretty much at the same time. Yeah. And you just think, blimey, I'd settle for that, for cranking out. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. But I was quite surprised at the, at the, at the lack of subtext, actually. Yeah. But it was just a very watchable episode, wasn't mm-hmm. it? With yeah. a very simple premise. And, and you're right. that that's, It's one of the ones from that series that everybody remembers because it was repeated so often. Yeah. And the reason it was repeated so often was it was self-contained and didn't have anything to do with yeah. the other episodes. Yeah. Because what people forget about whatever happened to the Lightlands is that it was a serial. Mm. And as far as I was concerned as well, it was a novel because, because I had the novelization of it. And that episode is not in the novelization because it's not part of the story. It's not right. part of the story of Terry coming home and Bob getting, getting married. Mm. So I, I can quote line from line from lots of the other episodes, but I don't know that episode particularly well because it's, it's not in the novel. Oh, that's very interesting. That's also that's another change, I think, that's happened in terms of uh, comedy writing and, and the... the, the at, at that age as well as watching Clement Lafrene and, and um, Gorton and Simpson, watching those sitcoms. I was also going to see uh, comedy plays by people like Alan Plater and uh, mm. Colin Welland. And um, these were comedy, these were very funny plays. And these people were then, they were writing sitcoms, they were writing dramas. And, you know, there wasn't the distinction that we have now where you are very much, you are, you know, a sitcom writer. And the, and, and, and sitcom episodes were, you know, they, they were dramas as well. And yeah. there, was, there was kind of more room for the drama in the way that they don't have now. Yeah, and producers had the courage to go kind of four or five minutes without a big laugh from the studio audience. If you look at that episode of Porridge where it's just Fletcher and Godber having a night in, in a cell by themselves, you know, there's no laughter on that soundtrack for a, for a long, long time. Mm, yeah. 
You're listening to Sitcom Geeks. A quick reminder that uh, James and I both have books out at the moment. James's book, The Sacred Art of Joking, uh, published by SPCK Publishers. That's uh, available from uh, lots of good bookshops, I understand. And uh, my own book, The Complete Comedy Writer, uh, is available on uh, lots of computers. Um, And... um, also, I'm going to be running some uh, classes end of February, beginning of March, uh, teaching uh, writing for sitcom and for stand-up and also for uh, topical comedy and comedy drama. Um, all the details for that and how to get my book are on my website, um, front page, davecohen.org.uk. Don't forget to listen to the Paul Mayhew Archer podcast that we did that went out a couple of weeks ago. It's absolutely packed with information and uh, recommended by Metro newspaper no less so there you go um and also we're going to be doing a podcast fairly soon with uh, pretty up to date lots of uh, big stories happening in the world of comedy but if you do have uh, any questions for us um please let us know and uh, you can get us sitcomgeeks at gmail.com or find us on facebook or come and join us on our patreon page that's a sitcom geeks patreon slash sitcom geeks hope to see you there where we are creating a a brand new sitcom live as we speak. Okay, back to Jonathan. Um, we should offer uh, some questions to the to the assembled several who are probably thinking, why aren't they asking him about X? So we should we should probably uh, do that. So if you have a question, formulate it whilst Dave asks a quest- one last question. Do you have any particular um, last burning questions? Ooh, I've now uh, taken you by, by storm. Yes. Um, what question should we be asking right. uh, Jonathan Coe? Does anyone have right. a question for our... There's a stunned silence. Everyone's smiling at us yeah. very yeah, nicely. Yeah. Ed, ed, edit yeah. out the stunned silence we if do. you would. Yeah. Um, actually, you're not. You're just a, a mix of political and individual kind of motives. Um, which kind of comes first for you? Are you sort of trying to meld the politics into the personal life or kind of the other way around? That's a really interesting question uh, and I'm amazed that I've never been asked that before but I, I, I don't think I have been. You get a better, better quality uh, <laughs> question here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think the only answer I can give to that is that, is that my first three novels really had no political content at all, no, no social content. They were, they were just uh, personal stories, stories about relationships and there was something about them that didn't gel and didn't take off. And then uh, I wrote a novel uh, called What a Carve-Up, which specifically, I suppose, I thought to myself uh, that I wanted to write a novel about the effects of, uh, of, of Thatcherism. And the idea behind it, actually, was a kind of fantasy I had of getting someone like... Why doesn't someone get someone like Michael Dobbs, who knows, who at the time, you know, was was famous for knowing how the ins and outs of Westminster works and, and putting that into fiction to show how policy is, is made uh, in the Westminster bubble, if you like, and then get someone like Ken Loach or the literary equivalent of Ken Loach to see how those policies actually impact on people in real life and just, just to kind of meld those two approaches to storytelling. And uh, I thought, well, obviously, I'm, I can't make that happen, but I could try to write a book which sort of does that in a way. So I, I think in the case of, of what a carve-up, and maybe even Middle England as well, uh, the idea that came first was, okay, Thatcherism or Brexit, and how does that impact? So the, the political context came first. But you have to, I have to 
depart from that quite quickly and, and quickly create some believable characters or revisit some believable characters and devise some uh, kind of engaging storylines around them because otherwise uh, the politics is not going to mean anything to the reader. It's not going to have any kind of emotional impact on them. So I would say probably that the, the, the political backdrop comes first, but I quickly leave that behind. Mm. Well, that's a similar thing with number 11 as well. That, that yeah, yes, I suppose so. That, this, that the story between the, the relationship between the two girls who are eight at the beginning and in their 20s at the end, that's, that's the kind of key thing that engaged me and occupied me while I was writing the book, but it was important to have the, the political right. impetus as a starting point. Yeah. And you do have these recurring characters, and uh, I suppose Middle England is whatever happened to the Rotters Club. There's uh, yeah. an alternative title for that, I suppose. But but I was thinking that is it the the the, the Wishaw family mm. um, who who seem to basically control Britain, and uh, have have we are, are we going to see more of them? Or do you think? Um, I don't I I don't know actually. I don't know what I'm going to write next at the moment. I haven't. Uh, I haven't really uh, made made that decision. Is that the ex- is that the exciting time for you? Because you don't actually have to do anything yet. You sort of just get to doodle and, you know. Yeah, it's it's or kind ter- of is it terrifying. It's a bit terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm always edgy when I haven't got a book on the go, and I don't really have a book on the go at the moment. Okay. So, uh, so you know, the sooner I, I can get back to one, the better. But uh, talking about the balance between between character and politics, I mean, I never I never talk much about Yes Minister, even though. It's actually one of my favourite sitcoms and kind of an obvious one to talk about because it's so political. But I, but I think it's so politically astute and, and brilliant, Yes Minister, that, that people tend to forget just what great characters oh, uh, Jim Hacker and, and Sir Humphrey and the Derek Fold character Bernard. Washington, Bernard, Bernard were. Mm. And, you know, the, just the human interplay between those three is so engaging and, and so beautifully judged, mm. I think, that you kind of forget that what they're actually talking about a lot of the time is is you know bills passing through the house of commons and that kind of thing because yeah. because the emotional really subtext to all of it is is so strong yeah. as well and it still works you can watch it now and it's still funny and although i do like what um the thick of it did and i've seen every episode of the thick of it and very much enjoy it um it's sort of showing a different side of politics you can now still go back to yes prime minister and when they're talking about educational policy you go yeah Exactly the same yes. discussion is being had now. The words are slightly different. The names are different. Yeah. But ultimately, it, there's something... And they, there's such a good job at not taking sides. Yeah. And it's interesting, because I used to watch it at a university uh, with a friend of mine, and he was always on Hacker's side. Mm. No, he was always on Humphrey's side, and I was always on Hacker's side. And we couldn't understand why the other one would support... You know, I couldn't understand why he was so pro-civil servant, and he couldn't understand mm. why I was so pro this <laughs> idiot uh, <laughs> prime minister. Um, but I remember, I, guess, yeah. I, I remember watching it when it was first broadcast just because I loved the warmth of it and I mm. just wanted to be with those three people in a room for half an hour. Yeah. And then I watched it again when it was rerun, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And I thought, God, that's, this is a cynical show. Right. I mean, it, really, it really doesn't cut anybody any, any slack at all, but, yeah. you, but you kind of barely noticed that at the time. Mm. And that's and, uh, just that sort of what you were saying there about the, the Yes Minister thing. It's a... Uh, um, the, the, that point about comedy, about having those sort of two uh, polarised points of view sitting together in a sitcom so that people with who are 
completely different ends of the political spectrum mm. can watch a show like Till Death Has Do Part and it can be the most popular show um, and everyone can say, oh, I love it because I just love that Alf Garner and other people, oh, I love it because that I hate that Alf Garner <laughs> or, yeah. you know, or I yeah. love the, uh, the Tony Booth character. Um, Eddie Ball. Got, sorry, got time for one more question if anyone's got one. Um, yes. Oh. I was wondering if you think that there's an issue with a lot of people thinking comedy is about escapism when actually it might be, you know, I certainly think it can be a very powerful way of facing up to difficult things, you know, not mm. escaping comedy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm so much of your point of view in this respect that I never really think about comedy as escapism, actually. Uh, but yes, we can escape into laughter. And, and sometimes I think the story of how we've got ourselves into the mess we're currently in is, is partly to do with that. And that our political comedy and our satiric tradition is so strong and so good that we've, we've kind of relied too much on it in a way in the, in the last few years. I mean, the, the example I always give of this really is, is the rise to fame of Boris Johnson and how Have I Got News For You kind of facilitated and, and enabled that. And we got so used to laughing at him and laughing with him, actually, because he was laughing at himself at the same time. We kind of didn't really notice what an ambitious figure was kind of sneaking up into the, the center of the of the political stage. And unless we, you happened to be in the room with him at the time. As right. I, as which I you, was which on you were certain occasions. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe if you were maybe if you were closer <laughs> in closer proximity well, than you enough, did. Th there's also the, the counterpoint to that is how I was talking to him the other day about how interesting it was that William Hague was a bit of a disaster for the Conservative Party, and he sort of didn't come across well and all that kind of stuff. And once he'd basically jacked it all in, he hosted Have I Got News For You, and actually did it rather well. Mm. It turned out to have quite a good sense of humour. Yeah. And so you just think, oh, if you'd been like that, I think it might have, and he, they, the Tories were annihilated. He wasn't going to make any great comeback from, you know, Blair was in for 10 years, and that was sort of nailed on. But it was interesting how it was missing... You know, he sort of like Haig withheld that from himself. And actually, he seems like a man very comfortable in his own skin and knows what he thinks and seems like the opposite of an ambitious person yeah. as well. Mm. So uh, Johnson was like he was like a all the big name comedians that I right. can think of. And, you know, he was just like a, a monster in the room. But then as soon as the, the, the light came on, it was like the charm. You know, then as soon as the, the camera switched on, that's when the charm comes on and that's the character that everybody sees and it is a character very much you know mm. and um, so I remember there was yeah. a very funny sketch I can't remember who wrote it for when I was script editing recorded for training purposes somebody just wrote a sketch which basically just said it was the announcement that um, that Boris Johnson is a hoax <laughs> and, <laughs> and they had these sort of two people who created this character and had no idea that it was going to get this far and you just think that's such a great idea isn't it and then sort of how it, it sort of feels on the day to day-ish sort of sort well, of was that little it? moment in uh, Outnumbered uh, so they have the German exchange student who comes to stay with the family and he's talking to uh, the family about uh, he says oh, I love your British humour it's fantastic I love your British comedians uh, Ricky Gervais he's funny and, and the other one as well the blonde one and, uh, who sorry who you know, the funny blonde one who does the news show. You know, <laughs> what? Sorry. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson? No, 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 he's not a comedian. He's a politician. No, 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 no. He's a comedian. We watch him in Germany. He's the funny guy. 
Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes, Europe is doomed, isn't it? Um, <laughs> discuss. Uh, we should probably uh, wrap it up there, shouldn't we, we Dave? We should, yes. Yeah? Thank you very much. And uh, can we please uh, give a round of applause for our guest, Jonathan Toe? Thank you.